This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome to The Beauty of Horror, a podcast dedicated to exploring the unsettling beauty found within our favorite genre. Each episode, I will sit down with a different guest to discuss a horror film they find particularly beautiful and why. I'm your host, Chandler Bullock, and today's guest is a horror host and critic. He is the host of the widely popular YouTube channel, Bobby Likes It Spooky. Beautiful welcomes to Bobby Torres. Hey, hey, hey. Thanks again for having me. I really, really appreciate being here. I'm a fan of the show, so thank you for inviting me on. Oh, I'm so happy to hear that. This is very exciting. I've been a big fan of your work for you know a couple of years now. And so getting to sit down and talk with you, it's, it's just so nice and uh, really excited to chit-chat with you uh, today about wonderful horror movies. Yeah. We've been talking on you know social media for a while so this is exciting to talk about like an awesome horror horror film so yeah looking forward to it thank you for taking the time but before we begin our discussion dear listeners i would like to kick off each episode with a quote about beauty that relates to our topic this can be from philosophy or from the filmmakers themselves and today's quote is visually beautiful things are things we derive pleasure merely from beholding whose mere appearance pleases us, and which we are inclined, all things being equal, to continue beholding. I'll reveal who said this a little later, but first, Bobby, let's talk about you and horror. So what's your uh, kick with it? What what draws you into the whole horror genre? Um, the storytelling, the excitement. I grew up on movies in general, but with my family, we watched a lot of horror movies. You might as well say I grew up watching a bunch of horror films. We took trips to video stores, rented VHSs, and found like some awesome horror films to watch uh, that weekend. And um, ever since a kid, I felt like that was the genre that I was drawn to the most just because the movies that I watched at the time, they were like exaggerated. Like I believe one of my first horror movies were, uh, was Evil Dead 2. And to start mm. off with that movie, I mean, <laughs> it's horror comedy, but... Like the effects on there are very just like exaggerated, like the you know the blood that's not really actually blood. It looks like mm-hmm. you no know, juice. <laughs> <laughs> and as a kid, I was drawn to like all of that craziness and just the excitement of the monsters, the deadites, just all of that stuff. It was just such a good time. So I believe that was one of my first horror movies. And then I got into like I was a big fan of Michael Jackson, so watching the th- making a thriller. And right. just seeing how the effects that they applied to him when he was turning into the werewolf and then the zombie, uh, when we get to act, the actual thriller music video part, I was just so intrigued by all of that stuff. And that started my fascination with just digging more into the horror genre. And at one point I wanted to be like a makeup artist because I felt like that stuff was pretty cool. But then I kind of just got away from that. But 
yeah, just being around my family, us renting movies, just being just introduced to weird things that I wasn't used to. It just drawn me to it. And then here we are today where I'm talking about it on YouTube and with you and my crazy ass background is it's a wonderful background, too. I'd say, you Thank know, you. if anybody's listening and you can't uh, see what we're talking about. Well, I mean, go to Bobby Likes It Spooky and you can see it. It's a wonderful <laughs> collection of art and uh, all kinds of little like figurines and stuff. I'm jealous. It's a good collection you got there. Uh, thank you. Most of them were <laughs> gifts. Some of them, I, you know, I mm. got on my own. But a lot of them were gifts because fa- my family knew I loved horror. Well, no, I love horror and friends. So it's like, oh, mm-hmm. happy birthday. Here you go. So Aww, I'm grateful it's really for that. sweet. More yeah. families should contribute to the horror addiction for yes. real. Yes. <laughs> yes. I have. So, I know so many people. I spoke to and they just like, oh, their family's not really into it, but they are. Yeah. So they usually find like their own little group of friends that's into horror. But I'm lucky that I have a family that's into it. Not as much as I am, but they'll go to the movies to watch the latest right. horror film. Or if I'm in the mood to watch something, they'll sit down and watch it with me. They won't, you know, deflect or anything. So well, that's nice. You don't have to watch them all alone. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So quick question. Are, are you, you an 80s kid or a 90s kid? I was born in the late 80s, but okay. grew up in the 90s, obviously. So right. I, I like to say I'm a 90s kid just because that's the decade I grew up in. Uh, mm-hmm. So, But I appreciate the 80s so much. And I wish I was born in the early 80s just so I can experience everything. Yeah, when it came out. Decade. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I still have a, a big appreciation for the 80s. I love more 80s films, honestly, more than 90s horror films. Mm-hmm. But I appreciate everything that the 90s gave us uh that's why with fear street with the 94 edition i was super excited about just because <laughs> i grew up i was a kid in that time so yeah i love that they use dispensers for the halloween store yeah. like, yes that's what it used to be i don't like <laughs> before all the pot leaves and stuff started popping up in spencers yes <laughs> uh, the reason i asked those because you were describing all the different movies like the how you started you know with the evil dead 2 mm-hmm. and effects was something that you brought up and i was just thinking about like i was born in 87 so i'm also a bit of a 90s kid as well oh. and so i think that we kind of you know we grew up around the same time with around the same kind of stuff and would you say then like this exposure to these practical effects and the way that these masters were working in that time do you think that's had a profound impact on why you got drawn into it because you also mentioned multimedia that featured a lot of horror uh, aspects Mm -hmm. to it too and the the link there is of course the practical effects and the makeup yeah i was just i was a kid that was a curious kid i was a curious kid Mm. and that stuff just again like i said before i was just attracted i don't know why i was really attracted to it i just thought it was just (laughs) awesome it was cool and i was curious of how certain things work but it's also weird because i was also scared of a lot of horror films that terrified me and i literally couldn't sleep have nightmares even though going back to watching the michael jackson thing with the makeup like i know how the prosthetics work and the makeup effects and all that and even though i know these movies aren't real per se but like i still would have that that effect on a movie just terrified me just because it had that effect on me. It just it literally just, it got me out of here. So I feel like, you know, in the eighties, they used a lot more practical effects, which I appreciate a lot more, um, even as a little bit in the nineties, but I feel mm-hmm. like that's a thing that I miss because we get so much CGI and stuff right now. Yeah. And I feel like I still, and I don't want to be like, I don't want to be nitpicky when it comes to horror films. Like, oh, CGI, I hate it. Because there's a lot of horror films that I love that have CGI in it and still mm. still a good horror film. But 
I think starting off with all the practical effects, like again with the Evil Dead twos and you know pretty much majority of horror movies that came out in the eighties, <laughs> a lot of it was practical, and even though some of it was cheesy, it was still realistic, and I appreciate that so much more, and I think that had much a much more effect on me growing up. And I feel like if I was to become a filmmaker, I would love to use practical effects and not so much like CGI or anything, just because, you know, I feel like it's more effective. I feel like it's more effective. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it it is bound to the laws of physics, I think is yeah. the biggest thing there. So even if you have the fakest looking head in the world, if you still yeah. put a knife very slowly against the temple of the head, and yeah. you make the right materials correctly, we're still going to go, whoa, just oh, yeah, imagining exactly. how it sinks in and stuff like, oh, you know, we don't like it. <laughs> right. <laughs> but CG head, like that knife could look like it just goes in super clean and then it's gone. And you're like, I yeah. don't know if a head would care. It didn't look real. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, <laughs> true, true. <laughs> <laughs> so I get you there. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I feel the same way. You know, there is a, a tech tactile thing about, practical effects good or bad that just for some reason even like troll 2 when they're oh, just yes. you know vomiting up leaves yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> oh my gosh troll 2 we're <laughs> lord that movie you know what troll 2 i mean it's one of those like like well let me ask you would you consider troll 2 a cult classic in your eyes oh. or no okay i think that troll 2 is one of the first proper like meme culture kind of films okay so it's in that liminal space that meme culture kind of creates. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, you do have it as a cult classic because people seek it out. On the other hand, there's a lot of yes. ironic watching. So, mm-hmm. and it's that irony part of it that makes it kind of unique in that way. But I think the love, the, the at least the appreciation for what people are trying to do, it, it's it's an Ed Wood kind of thing. Yes, but yes. Uh, I don't know. It's a, like to say cult classic. I'm like I don't know. For me, like House of a Thousand Corpses. It's more of a cult classic, Carnival of Souls, okay. you know, those sorts of movies. Yeah, because I'm starting to see Troll 2 become more popular mm. every year. I feel like I see more people talk about it more and more. Um, I remember watching that movie as a kid, and I <laughs> I wasn't scared. I was scared of more of the aspect of being turned into something that they yeah. eat rather than actual trolls themselves. Um, <laughs> that was the thing that terrified me the most in that film. I was just like, all right, I don't care about them. Like they're scary looking, but I, I was fine. But just mm-hmm. being turned into something so they can devour me later, I wasn't here for. But I feel yes. like people, a lot more people, are discovering that film, and I asked that because I, again, a lot of people starting to see that film more, and I'm starting to hear a lot more people talk about it. So right. I, it could turn into a proper cult classic that we'll ever forget people made fun of it or anything. Cause it's just like, <laughs> well, I don't think that's going to stop. <laughs> well, I, I would hope not. I mean, <laughs> it has earned it. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I, I think that the, the troll two is just this endearing little thing that people just, it's something you can put some love in that could really use it. <laughs> oh yeah. So Definitely. I mean, who else is going to do it? You know, who else? well, I think we're getting nice and warmed up. So then, Mr. Torres, what film will we be discussing today? Oh, all right. So we are discussing William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist, directed by William Freakin. Yes. The Battle of the Williams. All on film. Oh, when you named this movie, at first I was like, oh, that's an interesting one in terms of this podcast. 
And I had this when I spoke recently with uh, Andrew Hara about The Lost Boys. And I had it as well. Like, oh, I've never really looked at 80s and 70s aesthetic films that weren't like really art house driven and thought, mm-hmm. wow, what a breathtakingly beautiful movie. But it is true. The Exorcist has a few scenes and shots yes. that blow me away. But what I've loved about this podcast is how we get to dissect the concept of beauty and find it in different ways in different places. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, so I get to talk about The Exorcist. I get the challenge of talking about it this way in the podcast. And it's with you. This is a good day. I'm really happy. Yes. <laughs> and I don't hear people talk about The Exorcist that much. Like, The Exorcist is a is an interesting movie. It's a, another movie I've seen as a kid. It's I li- literally was, like, scared of this film. And, like, if you speak to any kid of this generation now, they'll be like, oh, no, The Exorcist is not scary. Yeah. Uh, just because maybe with the content that we have now, as far as horror movies, they probably see, you know, far more better, I guess, disturbing images and graphics and monsters and things like that, where you go back to a 1973 film and they're just like, oh, there ain't nothing. <laughs> but even though I didn't grow up in the 70s, I can still remember that when I first watched it, and even though I've seen Evil Dead 2, and that was far more graphic than The Exorcist. But it's something about The Exorcist of how, like, it's so deep, and there's certain things in there that's disturbing. And it's also this innocent, poor little girl that's just living her life with her mom, you know, in this home. And she happened to come across a Ouija board, which is not really, like, a main plot in the story is her finding yeah. this Ouija board and all of a sudden she's possessed. The focus of the film is her being possessed. And then you have these priests coming in and like dealing with their own personal stuff, but getting involved in Chris McNeil's life with Fragan being possessed and everything just goes haywire <laughs> from, from there. <laughs> it's not that story of, you know, oh, well, Ouija board, we have to find, you know, who's the actual soul or demon possessing, you know, Reagan. Let's find the Ouija board and get rid of it. It wasn't all about, like, the Ouija board was not existent after that because they didn't know where their demon came from. Right. We do, but they didn't in a movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that they didn't go what would normally be that kind of stereotypical route of uh, we've got to use this Ouija board and have like three sequences with it and it get progressively more dangerous and evil as it talks to them. Or, you know, the whole you think like they've already established Captain Howdy. So we know that at least Regan's having the whole problem of yeah talking to something that she thinks is benevolent. But I love that the movie didn't spend time on that. And it's funny, too, because it's one of the first movies to ever use a Ouija board in a film just because it was such a new product at the time. Right. That trope hadn't even existed, and they still usurped it before it was even po- – it's like they already looked at it and was like, well, no, we're not going to – that would be too much. We're not doing that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's focus on something else. <laughs> uh, and uh, for anybody who has not – actually seen the exorcist which you know maybe you're really early in your horror journey i know that i waited till i was 19 years old before i dared watch this movie so uh you know it yeah it had a reputation and i was a little like i don't know like for me the exorcist was almost mythological in how it was presented to me by everybody i knew who saw it in the 70s so I'm here I am. <laughs> I've seen the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I'd seen the Evil Dead movies, Nightmare on Elm Street, all of those. And they're just like, well, oh, that's chump change compared to whatever The Exorcist is going to do to you. Did anybody faint at Jason Tex Manhattan? No, but they did at The Exorcist. You know, they were really mm-hmm. like, don't watch this movie. And so eventually I just kind of, you know, it's like what Martyrs is for us these days. It's really like, no, you're yeah. going to be emotionally scarred if you watch this movie. Yeah. I suppose we're, you know, I'm from Mississippi, so... 
it does hit a little harder for a lot of people, even though we're not a Catholic region. Mm-hmm. It's a very religious area. Yeah. So I do imagine that if you have a religious area like that, the people there are just like, they think the movie itself it's, is a bad omen. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> I remember my grandmother, when we would watch this, she would like leave the room because she thought the movie itself, again, what, like you were saying, like a bad omen. Like, there you go. she, like, I don't know why y'all watching it. She let us. I don't know why. She thought the movie itself was bad. But, yeah, really. I mean, it's your house. Right. It's your house. I mean, I'm going back home. <laughs> like, I'm just coming to visit. So, um, <laughs> but uh, she, she thought that just because of the stuff in there. And then like, I had to think about her age. And when that movie came out, cause she did say she went to the theaters to go see that. And the crazy thing about it was she was pregnant with my mom when she went to go see this movie. Mm. <laughs> Ugh, yeah. So, emotions. yeah. <laughs> so I was like, and she told me about her experiences watching this movie in the theaters. And it was so, it was so interesting because she went with her sisters and she said she was literally scared because my family, I'm not, I'm a spiritual person, but I'm not religious, but I do have my own spiritualities and stuff like that. But like my, you know, my grandmother and all of them, they're very religious. So when they went to go see that film, she said that my great grandmother, her mother wasn't too happy, wasn't too happy at all. And my grandmother said she couldn't sleep. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah. (laughs) Oh no. Yeah. I'm just imagining now this woman just sitting, looking at her daughter and just going, "Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Like, why you bring me to this movie? Don't do this to me. <laughs> yeah. My grandmother was pretty strict. She was just, I was small uh, when I spent a lot of time with her, but and she passed away like maybe 10 years ago. Okay. But I remember the times I did spend with her. She was very strict. So I can imagine her <laughs> being super angry with my grandmother <laughs> watching this film because, you know, it, it goes there. This oh, movie goes yes, it there does. As far as, you know, demonic stuff. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so for anybody who hasn't seen it before, as I was saying, uh, I'm going to give you a quick synopsis that is spoiler free. So we've we've touched upon some of the film already, which we're still relatively in the spoiler free element there, considering it's in the title. There is an exorcism that takes place. Uh, but uh, here's, here's the general <laughs> gist of the film. And if you are like, oh, I got to check that out and whatever, you know, please do take the time to check this movie out before listening to the rest of this podcast, because you're going to want some surprises to hit you fresh. But if you don't mind that sort of stuff, keep on listening. Anyway, here is the synopsis I have. It is, uh, Regan McNeil is the sweet, shy daughter of glamorous actress Chris McNeil. The two are living in Washington temporarily as Chris shoots scenes for a film she's starring in. After Regan tells her mother about talking with her new friend, Captain Howdy, through a Ouija board, she begins to act rather strange. Chris tries every possible option a desperate single mother could try to help her daughter. When medicine and psychiatry fail her, she turns to a priest with a psychiatric background, Father Damien Karras, for help. Meanwhile, Damien is struggling with the guilt of his mother's quickly deteriorating health and his presumed loss of faith. How can he help this family if he has no faith to guide him? And these are just two subplots in the film really there are, uh, i wanted to mention a whole bunch of others but i think we'll discuss those as we go along since there's a lot to do with grief and loneliness and guilt and all kinds of emotions in this film that i think are what drive it a lot 
So we've already touched upon it a little bit, but I have to ask the same I always ask everybody. So I approached you with the question, name a film that you find particularly beautiful. And you chose The Exorcist. Yes. So I would love to know, why did this one <laughs> spring to mind? So I've I seen this movie uh, countless times. And like you said in the beginning, there's a few images, well, more than a few, actually, that there's some images in this film that I would say that is very beautiful. Um, some famous shots that if you Google, type in The Exorcist, they might pop right on up. Mm-hmm. But for me, I don't know. It's just something about this priest going through what he's going through and, you know, dealing with situations with his ill mother and then feeling grief after, you know, when she passes away and he's kind of feeling guilty for not really being there for her. I I like to say that I'm an empath. So if I'm talking to you and you're emotional, I'm going to absorb all that energy from you. And I kind of feel that I'm the same way with film, especially if it's acted, Mm. You know, if the, you know, the actor is doing the character right and is realistic, which Jason Miller did, (laughs) it got me. (laughs) And I mean, I still have my mother, thank God, but I can't imagine like being in that situation and then get called to, you know, come see an actress daughter and she's at this time, they don't know she's possessed. They just think she's ill. Something's wrong with her. And then, you know, she starts to transform and her voice starts to change. And, you know, she starts to become a a, a complete different person. And this girl's only like 12. Just everything about that, it just hit me. And then seeing some of the shots in this film, like when we, when Karis, Father Karis is dreaming mm-hmm. about his mother, because at this point, you know, I think she had passed away and he's dreaming and he's seeing these like flashes. And then the part that got me is when she's coming up from the subway. Um, I believe it's the subway and she's like mouthing something and he's yelling at her. He's trying to get back to her. And then she goes back down into the subway. It's something about that image that caught me and this shot very beautifully. Yeah. And then we get the fallen chain that just come out of nowhere. And then we get to a shot where Reagan is, you know, just going off fighting the doctors, swearing at them and doing all this crazy stuff. And like now as an adult, I start to analyze things more, especially getting into YouTube. And we, we start to analyze films a little bit more differently because, you know, when you're on YouTube or being a podcaster, as far as reviewing horror films, you have to look at stuff at a different lens now. Sure. Not so much as enjoying a film, which is kind of like a, a bittersweet thing because <laughs> you sometimes you just want to enjoy a film. But now that you're being kind of a critic, it's like you're looking at every yes. little detail and every little thing. So it's just like, uh. So doing it with The Exorcist, I really can't really critique it because I still enjoy the cinematography in this film. There's a lot of moments. The scene where um, Father Marin, the iconic scene when he's coming out the taxi, oh, yeah. and he's standing right up down below the window, and that light is shining right on him. Beautiful. It's, it's, just, it's so many. And also the beginning shot where we introduced to Father Marin for the first time when he's in Iraq. And he sees the statue of Pazuzu for the first time. Uh And that shot where you see him on the right side and Pazuzu on the left. And it's just like a face off. It's like a foreshadowing of what's to come. Yeah. And you don't know it, but when you watch the film for like a second time or maybe more, you start to, you you, you do realize like, okay, that's the actual demon that father Marin is going to 
come across later on in the film, just not in that form, obviously, is going to be inside of a little girl, which is crazy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's so many just interesting moments in this film that I find beautiful. We could keep going on and on, but and I know this is what the podcast is about, <laughs> but those are just a few right there. Oh, those are great choices. Yeah. So uh, a lot of the reasons that I had imagined as well. And it's also why I chose the quote that I did, because this is a callback to an old debate from previous episodes, you know, the, the whole, where's the hierarchy of beauty and how can we analyze it? And one other debate you have within the philosophical discussion of it is like, how strictly can we define it? Mm -hmm. Where does beauty stop and something else begin? Also, how rigid do we have to be in saying that, you know, something is just beautiful? Okay. Does that always mean the same thing? And so that quote came from Gerald Levinson and it's from an article called beauty is not one, the irreducible variety of visual beauty. So he's talking about beauty specifically in terms of what we see. So we're not talking about symphonies and, and other sorts of uh, beauty. And, it's, it's an interesting bit of work that he created because he taps into something that's already been discussed anyway without people realizing they were discussing it. But <laughs> in discussions of beauty, we already kind of talk about beauty and art separately from natural beauty, yes. usually. You know, the way we could talk about a waterfall, for instance, versus this movie, they, they have different properties. For one is kind of manufactured and there's intent put behind a lot of things that you see in a film. Sometimes it's an accident, of course, but in nature, these are just things that I think they kind of have like a universal sort of agreement that we all find these elements beautiful for some reason or the other. Right. And we can analyze that as well. He breaks it down into seven different categories. Actually, I thought this was really interesting. Breaks it down to uh, abstract beauty, artificial beauty, Artistic beauty, which is more what we're going to see in cinema, mm -hmm. natural beauty, physical beauty. So as with uh, people, physical beauty, moral beauty, which I really want to get into here in a moment, because uh, okay. I think that applies to this film quite heavily and accidental beauty. So I just found it a very good fit for the film, because as you were talking about, like it's you already expressed just a ton of different types of ways this movie is beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a great way to account for that. Cause if we were to say that Regan's situation being this innocent little girl and then having to fight this demonic entity and just see her kind of breaking down, that like there's a beauty to this suffering, mm -hmm. but at the same time, the beauty of that shot of Marin coming out of the taxi mm -hmm. is like a different thing, but yet there are different elements to it contextually because if we look at you know who Marin is and what we know about him and stuff that that particular shot means a lot more of course oh yeah <laughs> in context so yeah we have plenty to go over i think <laughs> <laughs> yes we do <laughs> uh, i think the best place to start then would just let's talk a bit about the visuals that's uh, yes. i think the first thing that you could you know pick out from a film and mm -hmm. we already mentioned one very iconic moment which was Marin coming out of the taxi oh yes my favorite shot of the film I don't know if this is just in the director's cut, which, by the way, everybody home, the, the, that is the version that we saw, was the the quintessential, the version you've never seen, but have seen now mainly <laughs> because the theatrical cut is harder to find. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we watched that one, and that means that there are some little subliminal scenes added to it and mm. some uh, extended scenes. I don't know. There's this moment where they're doing the exorcism around the end of the film, and Regan snaps her straps, and then she floats for a bit, but then when she gets down... 
she gets up on her knees and, and she reaches out towards the window yes. and there's all this mist and shadows. And then you see the statue of Pazuzu appear right in front of yes. her and it disappears. I don't know if that's just director's cut, but I think that's one of the coolest damn shots in the film. I believe that's in the original as well, mm-hmm. but that is an iconic shot. I love it so much. Uh, <laughs> I want to see like a like a, a new Blu-ray co- cover or 4K cover yes. with like that image on the front. Maybe some other artistic things going around it. But I would love to see like an official like cover with just that. That would be so iconic. It would be awesome. For sure. I mean, I know it's called The Exorcist, so I guess that's why they keep focusing on Marin. But yeah, I mean, the film's sure. really Regan's movie. It feels far more like she's the A plot, you know? Oh, yeah. Maybe for the 50th anniversary, that's coming up. That would be a really cool idea to put on like a 4K cover or something. Yeah, why not? Or a reversible cover or something. I don't know. Oh, yeah, totally. I love a good reversible. But then are there any other shots that uh, come to mind? Other shots, I would say one of them is, (laughs) it's funny that you mentioned that one because that was one of them. Also, the shot, this is very subtle, but where Father Marin is like a fall day and he's like walking up like this hill with all the leaves and things like that. And he's a different priest come up to him and like mention something to him, walk away. Yes. And then it slowly fades into Reagan's face. Cause she knows that he's coming. Mm-hmm. She's seeing that he's coming. So that shot with the leaves and the woods or whatever he's mm-hmm. doing. And it just slowly fades into her eyes and just, and they're like wide and creepy and just, that's like one of my favorite shots. I love it so much. Yeah. And also this is creepy. But you spoke about the the director's cut, the version we've never seen before. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there was a scene um, really quickly. It was in the original, but they added like these little f- quick flashes. Right. There was a scene where Chris was coming home and, you know, the lights are flickering and things like that. And she goes upstairs to see her daughter. And right before she opens the door, it's like a quick flash of Pazuzu's face right on the door. Yeah. And it has this like sound effect, which is like creepy. And right before she leaves, you see the statue of Pazuzu slowly fade in on a wall and it sits there for a while. So, you know, that room, that house is just, you know, like something's evil in that house, which is great. I wish they kept that. In the original, but I mean, it was, I guess it's an awesome thing that they threw in a version you've never seen before, because to be honest, I wanted to see that in theaters when it hit, uh, and when it hit theaters in uh, 2000, <laughs> they kept promoting it everywhere on TV, mm-hmm. newspapers everywhere, the version you've never seen before. And I'm like, oh, I have to see this. My mom was like, no, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but but when I finally got the the DVD, I got the DVD on my own for five dollars at the pawn shop. I still have it, and I seen it for the first time. And like those images right there, and just other flashes that's in the film, it got me. But I, I particularly like those images, the little quick flashes of Pazuzu, uh, just because it's different and it's, it's it's creepy. And the music behind it, it just you just know something is lingering. And just, just it's so it's done very well. I love it. Yeah, I loved how they used a lot of music from a Polish composer by the name of Kierzysław Penderecki. 
Mm. He's also used in The Shining a lot. So there's uh, some work that they used in The Shining for similar effects. But yeah, the man's work is just very affecting kind of music. Mm. So there's one track. Uh, I forget what the actual piece is called, but I, I was obsessed with this because I had like, I remember the first time I saw this, I was like, oh, who is there's no composer list on this film. That's because they're using pre-existing music. And so I looked up <laughs> as much as I could about Penderecki. And I found that um, one of the tracks you hear the sound almost sounds kind of like if you were to imagine what it sounds like if spiders were to be crawling around on their uh, stuff yes. on the webbing. And then you hear like it sounds like raindrops and stuff. It's like Well, it's pencils on the inside of a piano. Whoa. I think they just took their bows on the violins and just kind of like creepily like and then on the piano. Yeah, it's crazy, right? Yeah what you can do with just like this otherworldly sort of innovation to make your music, but somehow some way a pencil can create the most terrifying (laughs) (laughs) emotional sounding music. And it's used to perfect effect in this film. I don't think that there is a beat missed in this film. And you add those creepy visuals on top of it. And for me, that's where a certain beauty really comes from Mm -hmm. this darkness in this movie, I can see why people are scared of it yeah. on a religious level. You know, it does feel like an evil film because of all the different elements they put together. And as you said, it goes there. Friedkin did not care about making people remotely comfortable with this film. So yeah, either we're getting shots of a little girl doing things that I'm amazed they would get a young actress to do. Very famous, uh, horrible things she has to do. Yeah. And then on top of that, you also have the simple shots that you were talking about of just her in the shadows glancing into the sky because she can feel the tide shifting. Yes. I love that stuff. You could tell a whole story in just a screenshot. Yes, that's true. And it's funny that you mentioned uh, like the music and stuff like that, just because I feel like in music... Music plays a huge part in movies. Sometimes I feel like music is more important um, in film than actual film itself, than visuals, Mm -hmm. just because that's what's going to give you that feeling, you know? That's what's going to make you feel uncomfortable. So when you describe that, it's like you write all, like, that music that, you know, the, like you said, like you would describe, like, spiders and, like, the strings and stuff like that. That makes me feel, like, cringy (laughs) right now just thinking about it. (laughs) Makes your heart kind of tighten. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I love it. And also, the lack of music in certain parts of this film. Mm -hmm. They can play score or music throughout the whole entire, like, climax of the the movie, but what they chose to do is use silence in the important moments, like the whole part where Marin and Karis, they're, you know, trying to exercise Reagan and they use silence. There was no no music at all. And I think that was effective True. too because it felt more real. It wasn't as like cinematic. It was just like, yo, you just hear, you know, the you just hear them doing their exorcism. You, sprinkling the holy water you see the cuts happening you just, it's just the silence and just eeriness and just, it's just it was just super realistic you know music to me is pretty much pure emotion in a way it, it's you know it, it hits us in an emotional way far more than visuals do far more than dialogue does uh, not to say that that doesn't hit you emotionally, but it's just something about it that is just, uh, as you, I like the word you use, a feeling. You know, 
we can't really control our feelings so much as we can control our emotional responses to things. So yeah, when you try to kind of manipulate an audience with watching somebody cry or, you know, the context bringing a situation, those are good things to have. The exorcist uses those really good too. We'll get into that in a moment, the, the different struggles these characters go through. So there's a lot of empathy in the film, but yeah, when you use music at the right points, you really emphasize what emotion you're trying to get at and you can elevate everything else in that scene. I, you know, I didn't even think about it until you mentioned it. It's crazy to me how we have something as intense as this whole exorcism scene of like 20 minutes and there's not a lick of music throughout the whole thing. It's just listen to the rumbling and the cracking of the walls and them screaming and the air. Get, you can almost feel the air getting colder just from how they can't breathe in it. You know, the lack of music in this film, like I said before, in a climatic scene was it was very effective to me because, like I said, it wasn't it just felt more real like you mentioned like you hear like just the smaller sounds even like the when the bed is like shaking and you know when reagan is being lifted and when she's going back down like the creaking of the bed just little details like that is still effective and when you listen to it like on um like a loud system or with headphones on you literally can hear like everything which i love because when i get into movies i like i'm a big person when it comes to sound like i'm a big sound guy or whatever so i like to listen to everything whether if it's with music no music and with the exorcist it just felt like insane as far as like the no music choices but then also you mentioned about it looking and feeling cold in that room uh-huh and with the the blue color palette that's over like the film, like the 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 filter, I guess. I love that just because it's giving effect like all right, this area is cold, this room is cold, and you can see that the the breath, you can see their breath coming out. That's yeah. how freezing it is in here. And just the use of that in the film is just it, it's crazy. It sets the whole atmosphere and it just sets the whole entire like aesthetic of What's going on? Like, this girl's possessed. <laughs> the, the woman's cold. It's literally like hell in here, minus it actually being hot. It's the opposite. It's cold in here. It's just crazy. I love it so much. It's a, a crazy way to, I guess, in a way, end a film with all the drama that we got in that uh, that last uh, act in The Exorcist. So, mm-hmm. I don't know. There's just so much in here. Like, I'm rambling, but there's just so much I love about this film. <laughs> what I love about discussing things that we love, and especially if you're going to think about something as loaded as the term is beauty, is it does make us ramble. But it's not without content. I think rambling is a beautiful, wonderful practice when we're getting something out. So I, I'm right with you on this. I you know appreciate all of those things. Yeah. I think one of the best things that you can have in a filmmaker is restraint. Mm -hmm. And so to restrain themselves, to have every bit of dialogue take place with no music in this film is a very controlled and calculated decision to add that realism to it. There's something so bleakly real about listening to a mother freaking out on an operator because her daughter can't get a hold of her father on her birthday and she's just got to blame somebody other than her father because it's going to upset her daughter. Right. It's such a terrible scene. Yes. I am a child of divorce. Okay. And so I was a bit younger than Regan around the time, but my parents were separated like 
when I was very young. So I was never used to this kind of nuclear family that she probably had right. for a few years. But I do recall those conversations of Same. just, you know, if your parent doesn't have a way to get a hold of you and, and you know, it's always disappointing for the kid. And I know that the, the parents always like, the, at least the guardian that, you know, has custody is going to protect that child as strongly as they can mm-hmm. just to keep them happy on their birthday. Yeah. So I've seen some of those vicious, like, don't you tell me to calm down, just get on the phone kind of <laughs> stuff. So I know how Regan's feeling, but as I get older as well, and I start to understand my mom more and my dad more, I can just understand how all of them are probably feeling at the, in this point. Yeah. And it's through that silence that like, well, that's the kind of deafening silence your household gets with these sorts of conversations. Yeah. It's terrible. It is. And I love the movie for doing that. Yeah. It's real life. Like you said, I'm the same way. Like I witnessed my mom going off maybe on my dad and just like being in another room, listening to it. And it's, again, it's, it's the silence and how it's utilized in the film. I like how they use that. Cause me and you wouldn't be talking about that scene if it wasn't done well. Like we can, you know, we can relate to that. Because mm-hmm. it's it's real. It's not like we have any like <laughs> musical things going on in our background or you know in our real life or whatever. It's you know it's real. And then it's sad. You know what I mean like just hearing Chris scream at you know on the phone and then seeing Reagan just looking sad and walking away and just that whole scene right there. It adds to not just Chris but also Reagan and what she's going through, not having her father around and just. Chris being the single mom and, you know, Hollywood actress and raising his daughter and just and this poor little girl. And she's just sitting there just watching her parents, well, not her parents, because it's mostly just her mom screaming, but just hearing her mom go through that, it's, it's sad in a sense. And like you said, they use the silence in that, that scene very well. They also show Regan's descent or decline really well with these moments because mm-hmm. you see how mature of a child she was yes. at that point. Because she seems more sad that her mom's upset than the, the fact that her dad didn't call. Yeah, you know, She just wants to have a, a calm day, mm-hmm. <laughs> basically. She <laughs> wants to ride horses and have fun. Yeah. <laughs> it's my birthday. I want to ride horses. Yeah. Exactly so. And I love how she's just being pretty mature about it and not pitching a fit and crying and stuff. So when she is throwing a fit over things, I, I, I have to be honest, I saw myself in uh, Hospital Regan quite badly because wow. I, I was not about getting shots and, and blood <laughs> taken and stuff as a child. So yeah. I, I can imagine that's how the world looked to my mother at the, <laughs> when we were getting uh, the like allergy stuff done. Yeah. No, no, no cussing or anything the way Regan was doing, but I did have this all like, don't touch me, get off, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Yeah, I understand that moment really well because I was the same way as a kid. I did not like... First of all, I didn't like anybody touching me that I didn't know. Mm-hmm. And two, needles are scary. Still are. So I didn't want like things going in my skin and drawing blood and doing whatever you're going to do, even though it's to help me, but it's still, I didn't want... I just didn't like the whole hospital atmosphere. So, yeah, I relate with her in that part as well. (laughs) (laughs) But Reagan was just a little bit different because at that part, she was starting to become possessed. Because maybe she was fine with it before she was, you know, possessed. And this was just a sudden change for her. Exactly. I think that Regan, at least from what they showed early on in the film, seemed like a pretty... Uh, live and let live almost namaste kind of child just kind of hey whatever you know you do you and i'm not really inconvenienced yeah 
maybe they give her the shot and she goes, ow. Yeah. And that's probably about as much as she would give them. I, no wonder they thought it was something neurological because I have ADHD. And then they talk about ADHD mm-hmm. just in the scene after how she has a neurological disorder that she needs Ritalin for because she's having all the hyperactivity. This brings up an interesting topic for me to bring back the, the, the topic of the podcast. We've discussed two different types of horror in this film. Now we've had the religious horror and I guess even three types, if you want to get to the emotional horror, you know, things like grief and, and abandonment, Yes. but there's also medical horror in the film. Would you say that any of the medical scenes are beautiful? Um, in a weird way, yes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but like now that I'm looking back at it, because I cringed at a lot of those scenes just because I don't like hospital settings in general. Mm-hmm. So like I just I if you left it up to me, I would skip those scenes. <laughs> but it's the intricate part of the movie because you going through the process of Reagan going through her different stages of possession without knowing that she's actually possessed. You're wondering what's wrong with her, why she's acting like this. So those parts are important in the film. But one scene that got me in particular is when she's lying on a table and they put the the thing in her neck. Yeah. And it was yeah, and they was drawing the blood and then and then I think they were doing the whole MRI thing. And that part to me was just like I, I never had any of that done, so I don't know if it's painful. But just looking at her, it seemed like it was painful. I don't know. Like I, I can't explain how I necessarily felt because I haven't been in that situation. But I felt for her. I felt bad whatever she was going through. But as far as beautiful, um, in a weird <laughs> way, I could say yes if you're looking at it from like a visual standpoint. But other than that, honestly, I don't see it just yeah. because okay. I just don't like those settings in general. Uh- but how about yourself? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say, for me at least, no. For a lot of the reasons that you're pointing out, I think there's a real horror. I think that's the most real horror in the entire film because it's real. This is this is shit that people actually had to yes. go through in the 70s. We're seeing doctors gaslighting a single mom who's a very intelligent woman and knows her shit. So mm-hmm. she's not being a neurotic Karen at all. Oh, yes. She's just... Totally. Like, I don't know, my daughter's acting absolutely psychotic compared to how she normally is. So you need to fix it, y'all. <laughs> right. Like, this is what you do. I'm paying you money to fix my daughter. She's naive. Exactly. You know, she does feel that doctors are just going to fix the problem. That's just a rich white lady's uh, <laughs> kind of situation. <laughs> <laughs> um, but naivety aside, she's she means well, and she's just trusting these doctors, and all they're seeing is hmm, maybe we can get, do this other expensive experimental thing. Oh, an opportunity to try this research. Oh, well, maybe we can do this one. Yeah. And just torturing her daughter. Uh, as somebody with ADHD, I went through that ringer in the 90s mm-hmm. with the the medical tests and like all the pills and the combinations there. My mother eventually had to go like, get us back on Ritalin, get him off the antidepressants, and I'm taking him out of your care. And that was it. She's just like, she got a prescription and we got new doctors because she just wasn't having it anymore. You're not going to experiment on her kid, basically. And Chris does get that way eventually. That's why she goes for an exorcism because she's like, whether this is real demonic possession or not, that doctor said that she could believe that it was real, which could help her psychologically. I think that's a very sound way to do it. But the scenes, it's so sterile. It's so unflinching the whole way they're there. Yeah. The, when she's freaking out, the way they're behaving, I'm like, this nurse treats her like she's some sort of plague-ridden, maggot-infested rat that's irritating yeah. her. They don't treat her like a child at all. 
right at all she's a specimen yeah i i i agree that's why i felt for her more just because it's just like i understand they're there to do a job but she's also a child so i i would think that they would try to make her feel comfortable and it doesn't feel like that they're just here do this whatever this is gonna hurt reagan blah 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 blah, blah. and then that's it and i'm just like can we have a little bit more sympathy for the child please <laughs> um, <laughs> is there a teddy bear you can right. her lollipop something <laughs> yeah like... <laughs> a colorful bandage at least Hello. <laughs> <laughs> um, so i get with you and like you said something about it does feel very sterile you're right and that's how it is in hospitals when you go in there it feels it feels like that it looks like that and they got the so sterile and a way that, you know, often if we speak of sterile and the way a movie might look, we're also talking like color palettes mm-hmm. or take something like, I love how Saw, the original one, has a sterile look in a very not sterile environment because it's all grungy and moldy and stuff. But you, you have those, uh, you know, halogen lights on the top of it. Yeah, I was going to say just, it's the lighting. <laughs> yeah, it's the lighting. But there's no stylistic choice here. This no. is really just like as mundane as anybody's office. Mm-hmm. And it comes from the personalities of the characters. And the framing is just like, just very matter of fact, right. typical framing for films. Apart from when they get to the more intense stuff like the MRI scanner. Mm-hmm. They have some really nice uh, artistic shots of her getting prepped for oh, that. Yes. But I just the reason why I bring it up is because we have talked about already some pretty horrific shit in this movie mm-hmm. and we're gushing about how beautiful this demonic possession is and this cold room and these people who are suffering from all their guilt you know Marin has <laughs> lost uh, a boy to a demon before yeah. and Karis has lost his mother to his own neglect and we're like oh, mm, so beautiful yes but then we see this little girl in this hospital and it's funny how i'm just as horrified without any of the beauty and it feels intentional to me yeah. that you can enjoy one and you were just appalled by the other. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And that's the reasons why I love just film in general, because they, they can do that. And with this film, they did that perfectly. It's like, I never really thought of it until you just said something about like, I never necessarily looked at that whole scene with her getting her MRI and blood taken and all the other stuff in like a beautiful way but now that you bring it up to me (laughs) i'm just like wow there is some horror in that too because a lot of people don't like those settings they don't like getting that stuff done i'm one of those people and me outside of the exorcisms and the demonic possession stuff though that scene in particular is cringy to me you know i mean it's it's cringy and it adds more to what Chris is going through, what Reagan is going through, because there's nothing wrong with her. She's going through all these things, getting blood taken and, you know, being mishandled by these uh, nurses and doctors and stuff, even though they don't know she's, you know, possessed until much later, but she's going through all of this for no reason. And that's horrible. (laughs) Like all of this don't need to be done. It's really unnecessary. But, you know, as people that don't know really much about demonic possession or not even thinking about it, they're taking all these tests and just to see what's exactly wrong with her. And they're checking that like her x-rays and they saying like, she's perfectly fine. She's, she's great. But have you guys, you know, ever decided to go see like a, a shrink and Chris is like, I'm not taking my daughter to a witch doctor. What's wrong with all of you? So now they think <laughs> it's something else, even though they just checked her, like her brain and all the other stuff, they still think it's something else. And then they go into the whole, Oh, well, have you ever, decide to maybe try an exorcist 
for something. <laughs> and she was just like, what? So you want me to take my daughter to a witch doctor? Uh huh. Um, but that ends up being the case, unfortunately. And it's a great illustration of the problems with like American medical practices in the 1970s, just how clueless on a higher level everybody was about how people functioned. And it's very interesting you mentioned how. So when she's asked to go to the exorcist for help, she's just kind of like, what? Why the fuck would you ever tell me? Right. <laughs> to do that. But she's really like pearl clutching yeah. about the uh, psychiatry thing. Mm-hmm. That's where she's like, never. I would never go to a psychiatrist. My <laughs> daughter's not messed up. And the, the thought of mental health, I've been like, how dare you claim mental health? Right. She did not want to have that conversation. No. But exorcism is like, that's oh, weird. I guess I'll do it, though. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so backwards. It's just like, all right, you, mental health, health is important, guys. But uh, I'm going to see an exorcist. Maybe that's what, you know, what it is. We'll go do that. <laughs> I'm sure that's America today as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sure so. <laughs> yeah. So one of the aspects I'd like to discuss real quick that came from that article from uh, Dr. Levinson was moral beauty. I had never considered all of these different designations until I read this. And also shout out to my supervisor, Dr. Julian Hanich, who gave me this piece. He's like, oh, this is going to be really good for your thesis. And I'm, I'm very happy. Uh, that he sent it my way because <laughs> it hey. is very good for my thesis. Uh, it helps me make some claims that I'm trying to make for my own stuff. That's awesome. Yeah, it's good stuff. So moral beauty. I find it very interesting that the character who gets the most work with more artistic cinematography, also stronger use of music, or the, actually the two characters who get them, are the two priests. Both Karis and Marin get a lot of focus in very interesting camera angles. You've dream sequences with Karis. You have all of these almost dreamlike experiences. Almost like Marin's always a bit in a stupor, yeah. kind of trapped in his emotions somehow. Yeah. And you don't get that with most of the other characters. Like every time Chris is around, it is some of the most mundane just slice of life type of filmmaking, almost mm-hmm. like a documentary in some places. You're right. And with Marin Karras, we are presented a stronger sense of artistry in a lot of ways. Now we have the concept of moral beauty. I'm wondering if you would agree with me on this, that it, maybe it's due to their moral characters that the film kind of gives them a bit of a pedestal in terms of, the aesthetic choices that it gives them. Yeah. So I guess with Marin and Karis, more so with Karis, because we spent a lot more time with him in this movie. Because mm-hmm. Marin, we see in the beginning, and then he comes at the end. So he's literally like a bookend. He's yeah, yes. Like beginning and end. <laughs> and with Karis, you get to see him go through what he's going through again, like I mentioned before his personal life and then with his mother and I'm struggling with faith. And it's interesting that you're right. Like they do use more music choices revolving around those characters. And I'm not too sure if it's more so because they're on screen more, well, more so with Karis, not Marin. He's on screen more, but then again, I mean, you see a lot with Chris and Reagan because a lot of those, uh, well, with those two characters um, it's more so just silence. Most of the time there's no, 
music happening, you know, where their characters are around. But with yeah. Paris, you 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 get it more. And I guess again, like I was saying before, music is very important. Um, scores are very important, and it adds to character. It adds to the movie. It adds to atmosphere. It just adds to everything. And I felt like with Karis, it added to his character a lot. Uh, particularly the scenes with home and like his mother a lot, uh, especially that dream sequence. And then I don't remember was were, was there music playing in that dream sequence when she was coming mm-hmm. up from the sub or was it just silence? I think it was just silence. Yeah. I, it was, I, if there was music, it was more ambient stuff. Like yeah. maybe this kind of like rumbling, like, blah, 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 yeah, I think but it was, it was more like the sounds of the city. Yeah. I think it was more that. And you, and it's crazy because you hear that, but you don't hear, the dialogue from the mother she's like at a distance uh mouthing something and then you hear hum and you don't well you don't hear hum you see his mouth moving but you don't hear nothing then all of a sudden there's silence and you see the chain drop like it's dropping and it's just silence and then you just go to the scream of reagan cursing the doctors out yeah i love that transition (laughs) yeah it's it's great um but with marin i think the only music choice we really got with him that added some depth to his character is one of the scenes I mentioned in the beginning as far as one of my favorite uh, shots in the movie, two of them actually, is when, and it transitioned, <laughs> I think they actually transitioned to each other, where Marin is, you know, going up the hill with the leaves and stuff like that, you hear this like faint noise in the background it's just like, I don't know what instrument is playing but it's something playing and then it goes into the Reagan eyes or whatever, and then the taxi is pulling right. up, and then the light shining down on them, and there's this faint music playing around. So you know something is going to happen. You know something's going to happen. You don't know what. And I just love that eeriness that they gave us with Marin in that particular scene. They didn't have to use no music choices on those uh, two scenes, but they did. Right. But yeah, I think with Father Karras and Marin, I believe that they if we were talking about like music and score and stuff in the background for them, I think they got, got it the most opposed to Chris and Reagan and anybody else in the movie as a matter of fact. Yeah. But I mean, the more I'm thinking about it now too, that you're talking, you're right. Karis even actually has quite a lot of silence in the film too, to ground Mm -hmm. him. Whereas you have Marin, who's more like this mythological creature, just like the demon. They really are (laughs) like archetypes of good and evil against Mm -hmm. each other. So they get the music the most. I want to talk about that fun transition we were just talking about because I just made an observation based on this viewing about that transition. That mm-hmm. is one of the most beautiful editing things in the entire film. And I don't mean that colloquially. I mean, beautiful because the skill and what they've actually foreshadowed in that moment. I think this is like maybe the fifth or sixth time I've seen the exorcist. And it's amazing. I'm just catching this now, but when you have the transition of the dream going into because it was the dream that goes into the moments of her freaking out right yeah yeah so if i remember correctly then the dream ends with the necklace falling Mm -hmm. and then we hear her scream yeah i don't want it and she's shoving the needle away at the end of the film the whole reason that karis is able to be possessed is that in the struggle with the fight Mm -hmm. regan actually rips Rips. his necklace off of him she she gets the necklace, mm-hmm. which is the only thing that was protecting him against the demon. And yep. the demon can possess him. So I love that the demon is just like, it's not going into him because it wants to. It's because Regan is holding on to the necklace. Yes. I love that. 
it's such a cool little so, trade-off there. Yes, and you know, that's crazy. I never thought about that until you just fucking said something. I loved it. Like, I'm literally, <laughs> like, I, I literally got, like, uh, goosebumps, dude. Like, seriously. <laughs> first great. time for me figuring it out, too. You you inspired it by reminding me about that transition. That is crazy, because I forgot. Because that makes sense. The whole necklace, and then she rips, she does rip it off at the end, and then he's saying, like, come into me, and then he's inviting the demon into him, and then that's wow blew my mind right there <laughs> <laughs> well also like the final shot in the film is mm-hmm. i think it's the final shot or at least one of the final sequences is you have i forget the other father's name the really cool one who's playing the piano with them oh yeah yeah earlier on the film. Well, yeah the, the one who steals shit from the principal i love mm-hmm. that uh, <laughs> uh he at the end of it has karis's necklace because he's the one who said last rites for him while yep. he was on the stairs and he gives it to Regan in the car. Mm-hmm. So you should hold on to it. I'm like, oh, I love it so much. That's so that's good. my keys are safe. Yeah, it's, it's so, so good. good. And another thing I found beautiful about this, too, like going back to like you mentioning, like when he rips it off, like him saving his child, Father Karras, saving his child, don't know her. He probably spent what, like mm-hmm. maybe a couple weeks with her, probably. And he just risked he risked it all for her. You know what I mean? Like he just risked his life for her and he invited this demon and, you know, pretty much it took his own life jumping out the window to save this little girl. I feel bad for saying that probably not too many people would do that, invite a demon into their own, like their own bodies mm-hmm. to save somebody else. But he did that because he lost his mom. He's going through the struggles with his faith already. So it's just like, well, I feel like with him, he's like, what else do I have to lose? I have nothing else to right. live. And I, for some reason, I find that oddly beautiful because it's just like, all right, I lost everything. I lost my mom. I don't like, I just felt like the dread with Father Carries throughout this whole movie. So when that moment happened, when he invited the demon side of him, jumped out the window and killed himself, I think he was dead. I thought he was dead. I think his fingers were still moving when he was getting his last rites uh, read. But in my head, I'm still thinking that's like the demon in the home that's still keeping him alive because mm. that goes into the exorcist exor- three. But, yeah. Yep. But, <laughs> but um, yeah, like I find that scene particularly beautiful just because you risk your life for this little girl you do not know. And for you to invite a demon into your body before so I was just... It's, it's very heroic. So Father Carries was a, a hero. And there you go. It comes back down to that moral beauty. You know, like mm-hmm. I said, with Marin, he's more of an archetype. Yeah. So they set him up as some sort of like almost Superman kind of like figure. It's almost as if Superman has been doing it for a long time, but he's <laughs> he's fading. You know, I need somebody. But it looks that way. Yeah. He looks like Superman when he gets off the text. You know, right. like, he's just looking up. I'm like, Superman. He's like, oh, got me another demon. I'm going to fuck this one up. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but can I ask you that, that part? Because I remember my first time watching this and I it scared the hell out of me. Mm. When he gets off the taxi and he goes to the door and it's like a shadow. So you can't see yeah. his face when he walks in. You see his face. Silence. And all you hear is the demon screaming. Marin. Yeah. Super loud chills oh yeah every time <laughs> that voice alone mm-hmm. we'll get in the voice in just a moment because there's okay. a lot to unpack with that yes um but i never really thought about that scene with karis the way you put it mm-hmm. i really appreciate that observation of how you know when you think about how much he knew regan and chris and stuff he was he saw chris once from a distance mm-hmm. didn't really know this woman 
And he never knew Regan because no. she was possessed the whole time that he knew her. Right. So she was already strapped to the bed and acting weird and doing stuff. And, you know, he tried to approach it like a doctor and he had to turn it off. I wonder then, do you think that because I, th- I have two readings in my head about his motivations here. Okay. And I know one is more likely if I, if I think of how people make movies and and the kind of story they're trying to tell it, I want something more substantial than this. So I have another reading in mind too. Okay. Uh, The, the, the expected reading of it is that through seeing the demon and hearing the things and being convinced through all of this magic, he gets his faith back because Mm. if the devil is real, then so is God. Yeah. Or I kind of liked how you were putting it. It's like, I'm at rock bottom and this thing could be something outside of religion because he doesn't understand it at all. Right. He even says like he tries to use tap water to trick the demon to thinking it's holy water. And it does respond, even though I do think that was Pazuzu trying to make yeah. him not do an exorcism. Yeah, I agree. I agree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just trying to outsmart him. Yeah. But it is interesting. Like I would be more into the fact that, one of the reasons he's so susceptible to it and just able to be possessed is the mere fact that he still doesn't really believe that God would ever help him. Yeah. And so he's got to take matters into his own hands. Yeah. Like they presented it in the the movie very well. I just wish I spent a little bit more time uh, with father cares because I, I literally felt bad for him (laughs) throughout this movie. I do have the book. I have yet to read it. Oh, nice. My plan is to read it so I can actually see how mm-hmm. it differs from the film. Because I know the book was obviously written before the film. But I just want to see mm-hmm. what change. Do we get more of a a, a backstory uh, for Father Karras? And maybe we feel a little bit more <laughs> empathy for, for this character, more so in the film. Because in the film, you only could do so but so much because you have a, I guess, two out, like a limitations as far as uh, making film. But with a book, you have plenty of time to get to know a character. Uh-huh. So I'm going to read into that and see if uh, we get a little bit more depth with Father Karras. And maybe that would make me identify with him a little bit more uh-huh. in the movie. Yeah, they make it nicely ambiguous so you can kind of just pick up on the moral implication that, yeah. as you say, he's saving this kid. It's kind of all you need to care about. You can figure mm-hmm. out for yourself what the motivation is because he's a foil and you can just project whatever yeah. you want to on this canvas, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't read the book. Only differences I know from the book come from I saw the stage production of it in London. Oh, wow. Oh, they had Ian McKellen voice Pazuzu. Seriously? Yes. What? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's so, dope. I love that. They had this little girl just lip sync over magneto basically throughout this entire play (laughs) and what they do is actually explore what's happening inside of regan so there is a lot more dialogue between regan's consciousness and pazuzu so pazuzu it's way scarier too uh a lot of shades of insidious you know how there are moments of like hearing the demon just kind of like crackling in the shadows and stuff that's how it starts is she first talks to captain howdy through the ouija board yeah And then that's when they noticed that she had the statue of Pazuzu in the house. Mm -hmm. And at night, the night she becomes possessed, there's a shadow standing in the corner of the room. And it starts talking to her very sweetly how he just wants to be her friend. Whoa. You know, 
but you have to invite me in. I can make it all go away, all the pain. Because she's really upset about the divorce. Yeah. And that's where it goes. So I do like that they had that there. I can imagine the movie would have dragged a little bit. Oh, Probably yeah. been a bit hokey. You know, yeah. works in a play, though. Yeah. Freaky as hell. That is dope. I'm still shot by Ian McKellen. <laughs> <laughs> that is insane. I love him. <laughs> it was an interesting choice considering this movie. Well, okay, let's get on that voice. We were talking about the, the yeah. voice of the demon. You know, this movie has a woman's voice mm-hmm. for the demon. I think a lot of people thought that this was a man, but uh, this is a very famous actress with a very deep voice. I'm- yeah, I think her name is, is it Meredith or something? I think it's Meredith. I will find you. But I do know that they made her um, eat a bunch bunch of boiled eggs. They made mm-hmm. her smoke a lot of cigarettes just to get that yes. like nasty, grungy like voice that we got in the movie. Which is she's dedicated to doing because I don't know if I'm gonna eat all of those eggs and smoke and a bunch of cigarettes just to get a voice, but hey, you dedicated to your craft, do your thing. I hope it was worth it because it came through in the movie very well. It came through the movie very terrifying and it worked. And Linda Blair did an amazing job lip syncing those uh the dialogue that the woman had to, you know, do and screen to portray that voice because uh, it literally looked like it was coming out of Linda Blair's mouth. <laughs> yeah, I'm very curious. Uh, that's something I haven't seen a lot of documentaries yet. So, I mean, I've seen one or two, and I can't recall if she lip synced it or if they did a voiceover. I can imagine either is very difficult to do. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I do some voiceover work, and woo, it is hard to do ADR. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're right. Maybe she did a voiceover. So they probably had her. You know what? You're absolutely right. Because I remember I was watching a doc and Linda was saying that she felt a little weird saying some of the dialogue that was being said because right. she had to say some, you know, not mm-hmm. so nice things. And her her parents wasn't feeling that either. <laughs> but she got it done. So I think you're right. They she did do a voiceover. So she actually said it, and then we had, okay. we had the lady come in and just did like a voiceover of those because, wow, Good. props to my, Linda Blair's mom because I don't think my mom would have oh, it. Shit, yeah. <laughs> and my mom would be like that, that family. <laughs> I loved the few uh, documentaries I have seen. I remember there were some interviews of the family when they were asking how it was to have their child be in this movie and mm-hmm. how they dealt with it, and I love how the parents were like. Well, it's not like we love what she's having to say, right? but we're also actors and we understand that there's a maturity that comes with acting and we'd like her to learn it now. So you're cool parents. Yeah. And that's a good way of putting things. Yeah. Like it's not like they're excited and happy that you're doing it, but you know, it's the craft. And long as you don't take this with you in real life and actually say these things when you come home, we're good. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, I'm trying to think of some topics we have left to discuss. We have still a few. I feel that one of the most strikingly beautiful things in the film is the humanity. Mm. That every character is flawed. Except for Regan, who shouldn't be because she's just this 12-year-old girl yeah, who's trying child. to live her best life. Yeah. Exactly. She's allowed to be a child. Mm-hmm. And as a child, she's actually one of the most perfect children. Like she yeah. tries really hard to be friendly and she has, she's a sunny disposition, all of that. Or just like the kind of kid you want to babysit for sure. Like they're going to go take care of themselves. Right. I love though, how everyone 
her mom, Burke. Oh God, we haven't even talked about Burke, Burke yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all these characters are immensely flawed, and that, oddly enough, made me care more about them. Yeah. Even a guy like Burke, who's just reprehensible, and yeah. just a piece of shit, constantly yeah. through the film. Yeah. Once he dies, though. There was, I don't know. I don't know if you felt the same. There's like this little bit of a sadness, mainly because I feel bad for Chris because she was pursuing him so heavily. <laughs> yeah. I was more with Chris. Like, because again, she's going through these events with her daughter. She'll know what's going on. And I'm sure we have an attitude because she's fed up with the doctor. So, yeah. And she come home to find that, well, at this point, she don't know Burke is dead until, you know, her friend comes in and tell her. Mm-hmm. But I did felt bad, but for me, not so much for Bert. Like, I mean, it was said that he died and the way he died, pushed out a window and his head was completely turned around. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> with Chris, like that moment where she found out that he was dead and she just let out like this, like cry and then faced the wall and just like broke down in a sense. In the regular version, that's where it cuts. And then we go into a different scene. But in the version that you've never seen before, <laughs> she's crying. She's distraught. She found out that Burke is dead. And then we get Reagan crab walking down the steps. Oh, Jesus. On this yeah. scene, but blood, oh, fuck. you know, spewing out her mouth. Yeah. So with that whole moment going on, I, I just felt more bad for Chris because I'm going through the stuff with, your, the, the, uh, with my daughter. But all right, she's at home, sleep or whatever. I'm coming back from a doctor. Sad. Cool. Whatever. I come in, find out that my friend is dead director's dead and then uh, now i see my daughter coming down the steps backwards spilling blood out her mouth wow (laughs) (laughs) what a what a wonderful day to be chris mcneil right she needs to see a therapist i hope she got some therapy after this yeah Yeah. (laughs) then again would you trust psychiatrists after the shit she went through no (laughs) 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 what pill they're gonna put me on right (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. I, I think that's exactly where the biggest source of empathy comes from this film, mm-hmm. how it just layers things. Yeah. It's so realistic, too. I have friends you know, online and in my daily life who, you know, they may have depression. So life is already really hard for them. Yeah. Then on top of that, their mother's sick. And then on top of that, the brother got in a car wreck. And then they find out that, you know, maybe you get some sort of bill that you weren't expecting and you can't afford. Uh, your dog dies. And then we have COVID on top of it. People are going through this kind of stuff. And Mm -hmm. I love that this movie took a trope, but didn't keep the stereotypes of it. So we didn't get the omen, but like a a female omen out of this. It it could have, you know, we did have privileged people have demonic child. Yeah. But I love that instead of showing these privileged people being like, but my privileges are so not there. Uh, This is inconvenient. I'm happy that she's really just like, my daughter is the only thing that matters. I don't care about my job. I don't right. care about my relationship. I just want my daughter to not notice my problems. Exactly. Exactly. And you, it's just like with Chris, you see her become like, well, not become, you see that she is when we we're introduced to her as this, like, I would think that she was a likable character. She's just an actress, you know, doing her thing. You see her on set doing her, you know, her lines. And then we get the scene where, you know, instead of getting offered home a ride in her car or whatever, she decides to take a walk because she wants to be a normal person to take a walk yeah. down the street, you know, decompress. She had a nice day at work. 
you know, acting. And I love that scene where she's walking down on a nice fall day. I believe it's Halloween because you see kids dressed up. And then you got the tubular bells playing in the background, which is iconic. Mm. And Chris is just a regular person. Yeah, she is privileged, but like you said, she's not, it's not thrown in our face like, oh, well, I'm this, I'm this, I'm that, whatever. We just seen this woman living her life, mm-hmm. you know, as an actress. And this is it. And you mentioned before, it's kind of like a documentary uh, with Chris when it comes down to her. Because we do just see her living her life, doing her thing, minding her business. And um, she comes home to, you know, the, the babysitter and Reagan. And it's just like this normal family that she has and she's happy and content and then to see her to go from like being happy to being concerned then to be just destroyed by the end of the film like you see literally layers of chris just becoming you know just more and more just distraught not keeping up with herself you know she's just concerned for her daughter and you literally see the evolution of chris from being like Mm -hmm. this happy character to you know, this, I guess, destroyed mother because she don't know what else to do. She's been a doctor. Her daughter's possessed. She's doing things that's just like otherworldly. And you feel for Chris more. And I like what they did with that character and you felt it. And like you mentioned before, with the whole privilege thing, yes, you know that you know, she, she is a privileged uh, woman, but that's not the focus on this film. The focus is on her trying to get her daughter back to the way she was with the help of these priests. And then you also see these priests going through what they're going through. So there's just so much, so many layers in this film. And I think a lot of people look past that because they want to just see the scary stuff. They just want to see the demonic Reagan, just, you know, the head spins and the vomit, the pea soup and, you know, levitating off of the bed. But no, this film is so much more than that because you get to see these characters' lives and just see how they went from normalcy to just their worlds being completely turned upside down. And it's done in a realistic way. You get to follow them on that journey. Where in most possession films nowadays, it's kind of just like, oh, well, this is for entertainment. You don't follow them on a journey Uh so much. You're following, like I mentioned earlier, oh, well, where did the demon come from? A Ouija board. All right. And then you just focus more on the person being possessed doing stunts where we get stunts in this film, but not as much and it's very subtle and it's very quick, but you're focusing more on the actual characters on their grief, on their, their, their depression, just their decline of, I'm not going to say health, but I guess just of behavior and just their personalities. Like, cause they're, their worlds are turned because of this little girl. It's not necessarily because of the little girl. It's the, the demon. <laughs> the demon is messing everybody's world up. And I think that's their purpose. Yeah. I love that you brought this up because it's something that's been in my mind. That whole decline that you're talking about. I was just thinking like what I would call it, if at least what pops into my head, I'd call it like emotional decay, basically. Because everything yes. seems to decay in this film. Mm-hmm. I love that as Regan is decaying from the you know, the possession for the I'll, I'll, real quick as an aside, yet another horrible thing about why uh, Chris would not trust psychiatry. I mean, they are the ones that caused all of this in the first place because they asked if they could <laughs> talk to the demon. Wanted to r- just remind uh, listeners out there. If you didn't catch that, she mm. was in control <laughs> until they said, can I talk to whoever's inside of you? And that's when we started getting weird eyed, you know, green vomit. Uh, <laughs> version of <Regan>. um, Yes. <laughs> true. And, 
once the control, at least the, the, the full possession starts to take place, once Pazuzu has really started using that body as a vessel more than just, you know, kind of hiding out and chilling, she goes through various states of decay because she's, you know, the demon's trying to kill her. It's trying to just sap her away and make her yeah. just this tragedy that makes everybody suffer. That's the whole point. Yes. I love that you, that reflects this in Chris because as it goes on, she gets beaten up by Regan a couple times. She yes. goes from, and this is, and I, I bring this up because in terms of beauty, if we talk about physical beauty and ugliness, the movie sh- says a lot about how these different aesthetics are used in a story, what they can tell. Mm-hmm. And I love that ugliness is used as a means of empathy in the film because it's these characters at their ugliest places are the moments that we connect with them the most. But when they're the most beautiful in terms of their physical beauty, I mm-hmm. felt that they were farther away from us. And a lot of times on the screen, they're also farther away from us. But, you know, you have cute little Regan who's just like, I ride horses. And that's about all we know <laughs> about Regan. She's got horses. Right. You know? <laughs> uh, Chris, we see go to work. And then when she decides to to walk home to be so normal, she's still dressed in like Louis Vuitton and has like this really epic <laughs> golden necklace. And I'm like, girl. You're in Washington State. How are you not afraid of getting mugged <laughs> on the way home? Nobody dresses like that. Look at how Karis dresses compared to her. You know, <laughs> true. <laughs> so, I, I love that. That's how they show her, though. How she's really glamorous at all the parties, and yes. when she goes to the doctor, she's still caring about her physical appearance because she's the actress, Chris McNeil. She has to be Mrs. McNeil yeah. constantly, and just the moment that she goes to Damien, she's stripped down, no makeup, bruises all over mm-hmm. her face. And sure, she's still got a fancy coat on, but I think she just can't help what she owns. Yeah. Or maybe that's all she has. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, you know, she hasn't messed with her hair for days. She puts on a scarf no. to cover it up. And I love mm-hmm. that that's her for the rest of the damn movie. She's just kind of the real human being that is behind the facade of the actress this whole time since she's a public figure. Yep. Which, I don't know if you go through this yourself, but I mean, or if you can relate to it, but as public figures, I mean, there's definitely a side to us that we present to the outside world. That is an honest part of us. Oh yeah. But it's not the totality of us. No, it's not everything. No. And for her to show the part that you're not allowed to show, because people would just find you boring. Yeah. (laughs) And just interesting or irritating, I suppose. I, I liked that that comes from her, suffering yeah and it's the moment when i just kind of feel like i get you chris yeah you need a hug yeah (laughs) and i want to give it to you you know (laughs) damien goes to the same thing when we see him he's actually pretty polished going home just talking to his mom seems all okay and then the moment he goes home and leaves her at home because she's got a broken foot yeah cool he just spirals out real fast yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is insane i felt i felt bad for i said this already but i, I felt bad for cares <laughs> i just felt bad for him just yeah his character overall is, is sad but it's funny that you mentioned chris like just her being herself even when she's like stripped down from her makeup and things like that but then the final scene with her when everything is back to i guess normal like she's back to her glamorous self again with her <laughs> yeah <laughs> And things like Regan's that. trying to look normal. Yeah, Regan's like, trying. Oh, <laughs> right. oh, man, there's no color left in her. <laughs> right. 
I don't know why I do find that a pretty funny scene just from how much Regan's just like, I don't even care. Yeah. <laughs> Same here. But then it makes me think too, like when she hugs the other priest at the end, when she sees, um, I forgot mm-hmm. the name of it, but underneath, what do you call it? The white part that goes underneath their collar. I honestly, I, I don't know their collar. Yeah. I suppose. I'm sorry. Anybody, if y'all listening, <laughs> and I don't know, but we're uh, not religious. Yeah. <laughs> not religious. I don't know. I do a little Google search after this, <laughs> but when she sees that and she just gives them a hug and it, it makes me think like, all right, is she's going to become like, is she's going to be, you know, more into spirituality now is she's going to look towards God going forward because she know that, you know, this man saved her life. Also God mm-hmm. saved her life or that just remind her of the man that saved her life. And that's why she right. gave him a hug. So that scene was a little interesting to me, but then when we get into the exorcist too, none of that is existent, but we're not going to talk about that movie either. <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole different situation as well. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> That's a different podcast for a different day. <laughs> yes. Oh my God. <laughs> oh, we got to do that one day. If I ever get a Patreon, that's the kind of stuff that's going to go on it. It's like, all right, challenge time. Yes. You could buy, buy me back one for that. I'll, I'm down to talk about the exorcist too with you. <laughs> <laughs> that, we'll call that one like ugly cinema. <laughs> oh okay. yeah. I feel you though on that development and yeah, those questions never get answered. It's a little frustrating, I suppose. Some Sometimes I do like a definitive answer for things like that. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I do like they have the option that nobody really cares about the faith aspect of this. Right. How they're like, well, that was never really that important. It was more about what you do as people. Yes. That's important and how we help each other out. Because at the end of it all, did God do anything? We don't know. Is this God working in mysterious ways? Or is this a human being using free will to take a decision and do something? Right. You're right. You're absolutely right. I mean... Marin, it was cool to see him come in and help and see, like, you know, I'm, I, I believe that Karis probably couldn't do all of this by himself. I think with the help mm-hmm. of Father Marin, I think that was the final straw for Karis as well. Once he seen that Marin was dead, yeah, that's when he lost it. And that's where it took him there. And then that's when we got the whole hum tackling Reagan and Reagan. And she's like laughing mm-hmm. and snickering and stuff like that, which was a creepy scene to me. Cause I'm like, girl, oh, so- how do you get from your rat? Oops. Why are you in that corner <laughs> and act like nothing didn't happen? <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was something about that scene that was just creepy. Cause she was just sitting in the corner with her arm up, just looking like just lost. Like, I don't know who did that. Um, you can try your best to help yeah. him. But. <laughs> and then that's when he grabs her and does the whole um, take me, come into me lines and stuff. But I, I believe like if it wasn't for Father Marin, who knows if Father Karras would have actually went that route as far as saying, you know, take me, uh-huh. come into me. I think that was the final straw when Marin died, which was crazy. Yeah. So. I don't know, because I can't imagine Carrie's doing everything on his own continuously, like what Marion was doing. No. Yeah. Marion was telling him, like, he he was keeping him, like, sane and there. Like, there was moments where Marion had to tell him to snip out of it. The devil's going to lie. The devil's going to do this. Yeah. You need to stay present. Because, again, Karis was, I, I want to say it, but he was a little weak because he wasn't too sure about his faith. His faith wasn't as strong where Marin's just like, I'm kind of, I came here to do a job. I'm going to get it done. I need your help. I need you to be like present, bro. <laughs> mm-hmm. And unfortunately 
I think his true faith, or maybe just not even his faith, just like you said, just him as a human being, a person doing what's right. He said, I'm tired of losing people. This is it. You're not going to take this little girl next. And just him as a person just said, take me. This is it. I'm done. I need to go. And then just, you know, had the demon come into him and then out the window he goes. Yeah. And they established early on in the film, too, that, I mean, we don't get a lot about Marin, but there's like little you know, nuggets of information kind of strewn all over the place. And so we do know that he had experience with seeing a child possessed before. Yes. So the shock that Karis and everybody else is going through, he's just like, I've, this is the exact same demon and I'm sick of it. It's basically like these two are on a collision course the entire film. As you say, they look like they're standing off against each other at the beginning. How Mm -hmm. he's just like this son of a bitch. Not again. (laughs) Which is crazy too, because have you seen um, The Exorcist the beginning? I have, yeah, and Dominion. Yeah, Yeah. um, and Dominion, yeah. Dominion was interesting. I like that one a little bit better than the actual The Beginning one, but Uh I remember seeing The Exorcist The Beginning in theaters and it kind of is like full circle because he does see Pazuzu in the cave down below when he was a little exactly. younger and it tells the story of him actually dealing with this little kid. But with the beginning, it was like a twist. It wasn't the little kid. Sorry, spoiler alert for anybody that didn't see the beginning, but the beginning, it wasn't the little kid. It was the nurse the whole entire time where in uh-huh. dominion, it was the kid, I believe. So yeah, it was, if that was the twist in dominion is that it was actually the kid. Yeah. Like it was like another kid or something yeah. that was also possessed. Yeah. Which is better, in my opinion, because that's the whole point of Pazuzu, is that it just tries to break down the entire village in the case mm-hmm. of the beginning, because it's, you know, it is a Middle Eastern demon. Yeah. <laughs> so that is true. it makes sense that it's going to attack that area most. Mm-hmm. That's the point of Pazuzu. And like you said before, with the reason why Reagan was possessed, there was no reason why. Actually, the reason why is I wanted to just to destroy everybody around you. So I feel like maybe this was even a call to Father Marin. Like, all right, you we went through this before, you know, because they had like that previous battle before. And it's like, all right, so mm-hmm. that's this little girl and I'm going to destroy their lives and you're going to have to deal with this. And then Karis comes involved and this, his life is being destroyed as well. That's the point of, I guess, with demons and devils and things like that. They not targeting this person for a reason they want to destroy everybody around the person that they exactly you know they want to destroy everybody else's lives if you can possess a little girl and use her as a vessel to affect everybody because come on you possess a little girl everybody's going to like want to help and you know try to like free the demon from this is an innocent little girl of course i'm gonna possess a young innocent soul because that's the most precious thing so i'm gonna possess the most precious thing that's out there and affect everybody and mess everybody's world up and see how much damage i can do i'm speaking like i'm a demonologist or something but (laughs) Uh, you are just you know you know all the demons that you've been hanging out with (laughs) right you you know how they roll right yeah i I hung with angela a few times from night of demons and you know we had a little good time i've I've been to a few of her parties (laughs) <laughs> I go and she she proved very well she didn't have any plans she right. just did shit <laughs> <laughs> what i do like is that this in in the exorcist that it's really like i guess the reason why it is the exorcist and not little girl gets possessed or something like that mm-hmm. is because the story if you want to distill it down to what really is the point quote unquote of the, of the story is it is just pazuzu attacking Marin mm-hmm. from a distance. It's kind of like a catch me if you can yep. kind of situation that I've killed that kid somewhere in Iraq. 
you or I think there was in Africa where he had the problem yes. with uh, the kid. Yeah. And then in Iraq, you see the effigy, mm-hmm. which is just Pazuzu being like, hey, remember me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then Pazuzu is just like, who? Let's see if Marin even knows where I am. Let's and go to America. Across the world. Go to America. <laughs> exactly. And attack a secular family. Yeah. Which is the coolest part. That's the best way to hide is because nobody there is even going to think about religion. Right. And you're attacking an area that has a crisis of faith mm-hmm. because the one priest who's supposed to be making all the other priests be better at their jobs emotionally yeah. isn't capable of doing nope. his job because he's having a crisis of faith. I wonder, do you think it's Regan, like her body, that's actually going around and defacing all of the different Mary statues and stuff? Or do you think this is like a coincidental thing that's just spooking everybody out? I don't know. I can't imagine that it's Reagan because I feel like she's with her mom or mm-hmm. the the nanny a hundred percent of the time if she's not in school. I would love to see her going around the face and stuff like on the ceiling. Right. Just mess everything up. I would love to see that because that would be hilarious. But at the same time, it's just when does she have the time to do this? So yeah. I don't know. I don't know if it's just like an entity or there's other people being possessed and it just happened to be a coincidence at the same time Reagan had her situation going on, or is this just a sign of Pazuzu saying I'm here around somewhere. I don't know if he temporarily possessed somebody to do that and then kind of went back to Reagan or the Ouija board, Mm -hmm. whatever happened before. But I just took that as a sign of his presence being around and evil is near, but I just don't know how it physically happened. <laughs> so I don't know. You're right. Yeah. yeah. I was just curious if you had any theories in that since I don't really explore much of it. No, I would love that. I would love if Reagan was going around just to face and <laughs> shit. That would be amazing. <laughs> uh, that would be the Exorcist 1.5. Yeah. You see that now. <laughs> the version you really didn't see. see. <laughs> Maybe the 50th anniversary. We'll get that cut. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? I'm looking forward to that cut. Same. See what we get out of it. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm going to then just ask a very pointed question. I think it's a great way for us to wrap up here. And that is just, if you could succinctly put what is so beautiful about the horror genre to you. What's so beautiful? The people, most of the people I could say in the horror community that, uh, thus far that I have met have been amazing and they just make it so much more better for me just because uh they introduced me to new things they're awesome people we're like-minded even if we're not like-minded we still can respect each other most of us some of y'all get me to get it together but most Mm, of us (laughs) (laughs) we try yeah (laughs) but most of us and i find that beautiful because i met so many cool people like yourself this past year just through horror and just talking about amazing films even if the films are not actually amazing they might be trash but to <laughs> us to, to us they're beautiful they're great and mm-hmm. just the community just been amazing it's just been a fun time and then just we continuously get in new horror movies just like spewed at us like every damn day and i love it i love the oh, excitement yeah. that everybody had when Twitter and Instagram just talking about these movies and this is it, it brings everybody together and horror just keep getting better and better with the new movies that's coming out the new shows that's coming out like Fear Street is out right now 
I'm so for people with fans that's fans of the Fair Street books. The movies are out on Netflix, and that was an amazing treat for us this summer because we haven't had a good slasher in a very long time. And even though a lot of people have gripes with those movies, you can't deny that there was still something that was worth for the horror community to see. And it was a good time, bloody good time. So horror just means a lot to me. I love it so much. I love the people I met. I love the movies that we're getting, the shows that we're getting. And just us having conversations like this and talking about it, just having our like our content, our YouTubes, our podcasts, our blogs, us just having conversations on horror just keeps it going. And that's what I love about it so much. Just us talking about horror, expressing our, our love for it, getting into deep analysis of horror films, <laughs> because sometimes horror films are deeper than what they you know, come across on TV or, you know, in the theaters and things like that. It's so many, so much meaning to it. And I just, I just love digging deep into horror. Um, so that's why I was happy that you invited me on here and we got to talk about the exorcist because I learned so much stuff talking about this movie <laughs> from you and coming up with stuff together, talking about this movie has been great. Yeah. So now when I watch it again for like the hundred thousandth time, I'm going to look at it at that lens now because like talking to you just opened my eyes up to like so many different things for this film. So that's why I love horror because having the conversations talking about previous films that, and you realizing things about those films that you never realized before it, it opens up a, a new world for you. So I love it so much. I just love horror so much. So yes, that's all I got. <laughs> <laughs> that's all we need. Yes. Uh, we all love it. And I love hearing that passion about it. You know, you're, you're speaking to the, you're, you're you know, preaching to the choir here, but the choir is listening full on to what you have to say. Cause uh, totally could not have put that better myself in terms of the community and in terms of just the joy that comes from talking about this genre. It's very rich. There's a lot to discuss. And yeah, that collaborative element that we've had today of just us trying, you know, trying to just figure something out that we may have noticed. Mm -hmm. And then through our conversation, we may have made a whole reading of a film that neither of us was ready for. So absolutely wonderful. Well, then I think that is a great place to wrap up. So this podcast is a part of the Anatomy of a Scream pod squad. Be sure to follow the Anatomy of a Scream podcast page on your preferred podcast platform to check out more introspective, semi-academic, and fun podcasts, including 28 Days Ladyer, hosted by Sophie and Hannah Day, The Road to Nowhere, hosted by R.C. Hara, and much more. You can find more info at anatomyofascream.wordpress.com. If you are interested in more of my musings on beauty and horror, or just horror in general, you can follow me on Twitter at underscore shockaholic, and you can find my written work at Ghoulish Media and Morbidly Beautiful. Be sure to keep track of the podcast on Twitter at Beauty Horror Pod. And if you would like to reach out to comment on an episode or wish to send a guest inquiry, you can reach out to beautyofhorrorpod at gmail.com. Thanks again, Bobby, for sitting down with me to talk about one of my absolutely just favorite films ever. Yes. Such a wonderful film to talk about. So where can everybody find you? Where are your socials? And do you have anything you'd like to plug? I just want to say thank you again for having me. This was a, a delight, <laughs> pleasure to talk about The Exorcist. Everybody watch it. <laughs> and you can find me on Bobby Likes a Spooky on YouTube. I review horror movies through theme, theme ratings and collab with wonderful people. 
Uh, that's the whole point of me doing this. I just love collabing with folks and just talking horror, like I mentioned. Um, you can find me Bobby Torres with a Z, not an S, on Twitter and Instagram. And Bobby likes the spooky on Instagram as well. All right. Yes. Be sure to check out Bobby's stuff because if you aren't, you're really just living a boring life. Bobby's like <laughs> some of the most entertaining YouTube stuff and you know, your hot takes on Twitter are just, they're spot on. So thank you. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, love the content. Y'all going to love the content too. Uh, and of course, thank you dear listener for joining us and talking about the beauty that lurks within the horrible. Goodbye. Squad.